Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's not many more money for the prison service anytime ever. There's not many more money for the police service anytime ever. Um, they're going to have to start looking at what actually is important in terms of policing. What should you be banging up people for? Can we make revenue from cannabis, for example? that could offset some of the costs of treating people. That taken as a whole means I believe there is a rational case that drug laws will improve, but it will take someone to flip the switch. Stick Abel is a journalist, hosts the Times Radio, and is the author of the book, How Britain Really Works, a book which does what it says on the tin. How does Britain really work? The policy, the intercept, the evidence, society. So let's get straight into this with Stig. He's very fluent on drug policy as well, on criminal justice. So let's get straight into this on Scoopiest Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. This is Stop and Search. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And today's guest is Stig Abel. Go find him on Twitter at Stig Abel. He is the author of How Britain Really Works, which is a, an honestly fascinating book about the intersection of policy, society, media, all of those different things that we'd have to take on board with regards to forming policy and evolving policy. He is also, he's got a new book out fairly soon, which is a fiction called Death Under the Little Sky. So I'm going to be reading that as well. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about criminal justice system. Stig has done a lot of work within prisons and visiting prisons and looking at the different models of the penal systems across the globe. He's very fluent on drug policy. He does know his stuff on this. And, of course, we have to talk about the media. How can we not with Stig Abel? You know, we couldn't get much of a better figure to talk about the media and how that works with politics and politicians. So go find him on Twitter. If you want to know more about our work, then you can find us at UK Loop on Twitter and Instagram and UKLoop.org is our Facebook and our website. Now, this was recorded before lockdown, but every single thing is still relevant. It hasn't dated at all. So that's why we've held this conversation back because I wanted to get it in the second season of Stop and Search. So let's get it out. Let's listen to it now. So, yeah, this is Dick Abel on Stop and Search. The, the book that you've written is just it's so perfect for now yeah. because it's <laughs> it's how Britain really works and I was, I've been reading it whilst the, in the workings of the political system because everything's been kicking off over this well 
how many years now? Since probably since Brexit and further. Yeah, probably before. So the the can you give me a brief description, of, uh, which is going to be impossible because it's just so well researched of what how Britain really works is about. Well, the reason I, I wrote it was I spent a bit of time going on TV and radio. I had an LBC show while I was writing this book, a, um, a radio calling show, and it occurred to me, as it may well occur to lots of people, how ignorant I was, um, and I, I kind of grew up. And you hear things, you half understand things, you hear words and phrases, and you think, oh, no. You know, before the Windrush scandal, you hear Windrush generation. You think, well, what's the Windrush generation? Or you hear about um, the the Malayan emergency, or you hear about Black Wednesday, or you hear about, um, you think, the NHS. When was that created again? Why was it created? Uh, Why do we have the laws we have? How many people are in prison? Why are we in prison? How do we compare to the rest of Europe or, or the rest of the world. And it's almost impossible really to have a proper opinion unless you have the time and energy to research why we've ended up where we have ended up. And so really part of the, the stimulus for doing this book was my own sense of ignorance. And I thought that I could probably ask questions and answer questions for my own benefit. It might be of use um, to other people because if you split the country into various different areas, most things aren't that new. Or, and they're not that old either. They've happened in the last century, really. Most significant change really relates to the period after Second World War. So it's good to know about this stuff. And I thought if I could try and answer it and write it in a fun way and entertain myself when I was writing it, not be too serious, um, that might be of benefit. So that's how it ended up. And then I spent 18 months writing it. And, and, and it's not really out of date because a lot of the messes and the muddles and the crapness that I'm constantly referring to is everlasting. It's not changing anytime soon. It must have taken so much research as well. Yeah, although, I mean, it's like all these things. You pause to reflect that pre-technology, it would be an impossible job book for me to have written because I'd have had to have stopped work, gone and sit in a library for, for three years. So much more is available uh, digitally now, and that does enable you to, 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 to work more easily, I think. But it, that raises itself a question, which I haven't got an answer to, which is, if you look in the last 20 years, Look at all the labour-saving devices that we've created in the world of work, and no one works fewer hours than they did 20 years ago. So we've managed to have the worst of both worlds in this country and the world more generally, is that we seem to have all this technology, all this intrusive technology, which constantly uh, follows us around everywhere. But it hasn't actually stopped us working. Hasn't you know? Why are we not all on four-day weeks? Why are we not all on three-day weeks? Why do we all not work different hours? And, and why is everything fixed in sort of slightly Victorian? Get up at seven in the morning, come home at eight o'clock at night, do that for five days of the week because some people were religious once, and the Sunday has to be holy, and the Saturday has to partner with the Sunday. All of that's insane, actually, when you think about it. But it doesn't really show any sign of shifting either. And this this is where it really integrates into the theme of the book and the discussion we're about to have, because a lot of it is about you highlighting how antiquated certain systems and procedures we've still got. And you've what's really occurred to me within the book is that you've got a perspective of what it's like inside the Houses of Parliament. I've got a perspective because I've been there a few times, but most people don't get to experience it. So can you give a bit of a description of what it's like both as a building, but also of what it's like inside dealing with the MPs. I mean, the great lesson in life, and I say this to to, to kids I speak to come to, to to where I work, the great lesson in life, and it's a quote from um, the Hollywood screenwriter, William Goldman, no one knows anything. Nobody is competent. Everyone is winging it. And there is no better dramatised than the Houses of Parliament and government. 
you kind of grow up with this half expressed understanding in your mind that people who are older than you, people who are more successful than you or more powerful than you must know what they're doing. They must have some basic sense uh, and expertise. And actually the reality absolutely categorically is not the case. People tend to be where they are by a strange concatenation of circumstances, and they very often fail to show expertise. And that's horrifying at one level, and it's kind of heartening at another. No one should ever feel bad about themselves. No one ever should feel um, less qualified or less powerful than other people because most people are winging it. And I think this is epitomized by, by our government. If you go to the building, it's now under scaffolding. It's filled with mice. It's this Victorian building that's trying to look like a medieval building. So you walk around the main body of the House of Commons uh, and you think, oh God, this must have been here for a thousand years. And of course it hasn't. It was built after a gigantic fire in the 1830s when they were destroying a bunch of uh, sticks. So the economy used to be based on tally sticks. People used to record financial transactions on tally sticks, these bits of wood. And the Victorians saw them in a big a room and thought, oh, what a waste, we'll just burn them. The classic Victorian attitude to everything. And so they burnt these tally sticks and that caught, that set the building alight. The building was gutted. And so the building itself only is 19th century, but pretends to be older. There's a one old bit, Westminster Hall. Um, it's really ratty and um, uh, filled with sort of weird corners. Uh, people there don't fully know why they're there. There's lots of desultory exchanges um, that go on. Uh, and so this seat of power, this this place where everything runs, is a pretty good visual metaphor for the state of government generally. It, it's antiquated, it's old-fashioned, it doesn't really know of its place in, in the modern world. And of course, there's an argument that because it's so dilapidated, it needs to be fixed, it will cost a billion-odd pounds more to fix it. So why not move out of London entirely? Because the minute we have it sitting in the middle of our capital city, as part of numerous other things that sit in our capital city that suck all of the investment, all of the attention from the rest of the country. So we have a vastly imbalanced country. And there's a very strong argument, I mean, an almost unanswerable argument, I think, to say, why don't we stick it in a northern city or a midland city and try and recenter the country a little bit? Because we don't have to keep doing the things the same way over and over again, although that is what we do do. That, that is really interesting because I certainly, I always ask this of people coming from Kent and, you know, kind of lobbying for drug law reform and other aspects. It does seem as if there is a typical Westminster bubble. The conversations that I have down in Kent, very different to the ones I have in London. And the conversations don't necessarily correspond. You know, the, the, the drip feed of Westminster bubble doesn't hit Kent. You know, the... I don't know, the false confidence that can come with, with the political class doesn't seem to represent the rest of the country. And Kent is more lucky than most because there is a, um, a sort of centrifugal activity. So the closer you are to London, exactly. I think the better you tend to do. The southeast does better than any other region. And there's, there's a figure, actually, if you look at since the banking crash of 2008, the only region that's recovered in GDP terms to where it was at 2008, the only one in the whole country is the southeast. Everything else is effectively worse off than it was in 2008. So you don't get an awful lot of, of economic. And like you say, the nation, if it's going to mean anything, it has to be about conversations and influences and interchanges that go on everywhere. And it's a very, I know MPs have their constituencies and they'll say that's very important to them, but the power nexus is, is, is London. And look at countries that don't have this. 
Even America has Washington, D.C., New York, Los Angeles. The power, the entertainment centers in Los Angeles, the governments in Washington, the, the stock markets in New York, Germany has, you know, Berlin, Bonn, Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, spread of things. Australia has three major cities. Uh, so you have different bits everywhere. There's an argue, a very strong argument, it seems to me, that fairer societies or the opportunity for fair societies happen when there is a spread, when there is a um, um, a sharing out of things. And actually, it's most fundamental. You could share out different things. You could have the centre of politics in Birmingham. You could have the stock market still in London. You could have a media centre in Manchester, you have, as you have a little bit at the moment. Why not spread it out a little bit more? I'm going to come to drug laws in, in, in a little bit because you're one of the few public figures that have had a very early uh, position on this. But that, that what you've just said there again is really fascinating because do you think that because we are so spread out, do you think that gives politicians a way of give, having a bit of an out with regards to certain emotive policies like welfare, like um, anything that's where there's going to be a, a certain class divide? Do you think that just allows politicians to not see things appropriately? I think it's difficult because I think some politicians would say they see it better than, say, I would see it because I live in London. I'm from Loughborough. I'm from the Midlands. Um, so I, you know, I have some experience of not being in the centre. And a politician who lives in Barrow or lives in um, Cornwall or wherever will say that they, they feel it more keenly. There's a certain consensus that develops, which was people have dismissed as sort of the neoliberal consensus of the last 20 years on how economics should work, how capitalism should function. And then there were lots of people agreeing with one another. And then before 2008, everyone felt, well, the economy, economics had been fixed. Gordon Brown talks about the end of boom and bust. Fukuyama had talked about the end of history in the sense that there'd been this breakthrough. You know, communism had been defeated. The idea of, of pushing left had kind of gone away. The real message was we'd got to the point where capitalism had triumphed. It's done a lot of great things. And then it was just going to be an endless iteration and honing of that. Then the banking crisis comes in in 2008 and destroys all of that. And I think we're li one of the reasons we're living in such parlous times, such tribal times, is actually the plates have shifted. No one quite knows what the answer is, but this consensus that there was a centrist approach that everyone was going to sign up to has disappeared. And it's left, as I think, um, tribalized to a very great extent. And I'm not sure that geography has always got anything to do, but it is a absolute fact in our country. And this would probably in other countries lead to revolution, that if you live in the North, you have a much greater chance of having a bad school that you kids go to. You have a much greater chance of having a poorer health outcome. Um, you have a much greater chance of dying earlier. I mean, the difference in in the living, the, the, the life expectancy of someone in Blackpool versus someone in West London is 10 years or something. That's 10 years of life just because of where you're geographically born. Um, and I think that's probably where, if, if Parliament was in the North, it's hard to imagine that they would say, oh, there's a 10 year discrepancy between um, life expectancies between the North and the South, we'll do nothing about it. But it's been there for a very long time. And I think there are these splits that develop. So there is the North versus South, there is educated versus non-educated, which comes up in lots of policy, I include, I imagine, drug laws, um, men versus women, immigrants versus indigenous. You, know, you can cut Britain up, actually, along some pretty significant lines, which don't appear to be getting closer together now. They appear to be widening. There's, there's a great quote, which kind of, I like to write this down, but it's quite early on in your book. Um, it's about ideology. And, and you say that with regards to certain hard subjects, 
like drug laws, welfare, uh, even the NHS. Um, you, you, there's a quote in there from you that says, and this is where I hate reading things out. Yeah, go for it. But ideology is easier. It always triumphs. Implementation is always the next government's problem or next generation's. That is so perfect because we're seeing that now. We're seeing that with drug laws and all sorts of things, welfare. Things just get handed over. It's like, well, we know something's not right, but we don't want to do anything about it. Yeah, and there's an argument. I don't have a solution to this, but and if an electoral cycle operates at a five-year at best, you know, longest is five years. But actually, if you look at education, for example, there are education ministers coming every two years, even less than that. So you have massive turnover of people. They're making promises that can never really be checked beyond five years. And so everything is driven towards short-termism. The system is geared towards short-termism. And so it's easier to have a slogan. It's easier to find your tribe. And if the tribe's big enough, they'll keep you in power and to give them what they seem to want. But actually, government, at its heart, should be an incredibly boring thing from the outside. It should simply be about delivery of services. It should be simply about making sure this money that comes in via taxes gets spent most properly. That should be an ever-increasingly efficient process because it should have all the best minds saying, well, last year we delivered it this way. If we just fixed it a little bit, it would be a couple of percent better. Isn't it interesting that that doesn't really happen? And it's because politics gets involved. So the civil servants are chugging along, but they'll be changing their policy every 18 months, every three years, every five years. And look, there there isn't isn't really an answer to that because, you know, you could have an absolute monarchist, an absolute monarchy rather, and have no changes in power. uh, And therefore you'd have space to do that. But that's not, not a solution either, very obviously. So I'm not saying it's easy, but government should be very practical and instead, it's very ideological. I think we do lose in the gap between those two things. It's, it's like you said as well. You quote Orwell, where everything is, every issue is political. Yeah. And it's it's the the processes because you again have seen it both from a journalist and being a spectator. But the processes that we deal with, especially in lawmaking, are just so convoluted. And, you, and the book How Britain Really Works that you've written does such a good way of trying to condense the way that that works because most people were unaware of this. Well, and, and, and I was to a certain extent why I wrote it, like I said, and and, and it, it's very hard. The other thing is there's a lot of, uh, of difficulty. But, you know, in the law, law's a really good example. Blair, one of the things that Blair, I would argue, is bad. He created so many laws. And there are lots of examples of judges not knowing the laws which they're being asked to enforce and the law having been updated or changed and a judge say, and, you know, mid-trial, mid-case, trying to determine precisely what the law is. And Blair was a hugely interventionist figure, and there's an argument about where his legacy and, and that, that's there to be there to be had. And there are lots of good things I think his government did. But creating an endless number of laws that then have to be enforced and interpreted, and that itself then getting cha- you know, precedent changing people's um, views can cause a real problem because if you don't fully understand, if people don't fully understand the rules that they're supposed to be following, how can they possibly follow? And this is where I'm going to kind of segue into, um, because there's so much I want to touch on with you, because again, we've got like the media aspect, which we deal with, we've got the political aspect, but you've really good done a good segue into how, what you think law and order should look like. Instead of being focused on punishment, because there's, there's a massive chapter on law and order, you think we should err towards restorative justice? I really do. And look, I, I think that it is an in, indisputable fact that we handle law and order very badly in this country. We have a huge incarceration problem. We imprison too many people. 
And actually, I would prefer it if politicians stood on a platform of sending fewer people to prison. And maybe this is happening a tad now. So if you look back to um, Tony Blair, again, he had a vast majority. He could really have shaped the society however he wanted to. And yet he was very clear, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Uh, the Jamie Bolger murder, which was happening just before he took over, the Tories wanted to show that they were tough on, on things where their moral panics erupt. This is true of drugs. I think also, but moral panics erupt. The answer is never, let's holistically look at the problem. Let's try and solve these problems before they become crimes. Let's treat issues as what happens when a child is born all the way through to the time a crime is committed. Let's try and fix that issue as far as we can. Instead, it just becomes a battle to see who can be tougher, who can talk tougher, who can bang people up more. So we have 85,000 people or 87,000 people in prison as we speak. In the in the Thatcher years, which isn't that long ago, it was half that amount. And the, the population hasn't doubled in that time of the nation, but the population of our prisons have doubled. So we're putting more people in prison. Um, crime in that time has largely gone down. We're seeing a, a, an epidemic at the moment of violent crime. So that is going up. Knife crime is going up. Acid crime is a new thing. But if you look in the longer period from the 1990s to now, crime has gone down, both in terms of how it's reported and how it's measured, and yet more people are going to prison. That would suggest there's a fundamental problem in how we're approaching this. But it, but the question, therefore, is do we feel that there's enough of a liberal attitude that can be accepted by politicians? Do we feel that England and Britain, more broadly, are willing to listen to liberal arguments? Because the problem is, and I've done this on phone-ins uh, on the radio, you just have victims of crime and understandably, this is not a criticism, I can understand the emotional response saying, something has happened to me, I demand punishment, I demand retribution. And at the individual level, that's very understandable. But the role of politicians, it seems to me, is to abstract from the individual to consider the societal. And we have far too many people reoffending. Our recidivism rates are massively higher than other countries. Why is that? It's probably because we have a, a, a prison system that doesn't work. It's based on vic literally Victorian prisons, you know, actual buildings that were there um, from the Victorian period. And an attitude that is coalesced around, if you do anything that's soft on crime, you're somehow betraying the nation. And if, if we're ever going to see change, that is where that attitude will have to shift, I think. And, and you've seen inside prisons. You've, yeah. you've been in there, and the descriptions you give in the book are, are brilliant. And they are mostly, like you said, antiquated buildings on antiquated systems. And yet we still pour people through those doors. And they're all, I mean, you know, I, I, and it's hard to get into prisons actually as a journalist because they don't like to see them. And I got in because I used the contact who uh, was religious because um, they have alpha courses which go into prison. So I went in via a chaplain and I went to this chapel in a prison which I'm, I'm not allowed to name. And I hung out there for like two or three hours for a alpha course involving prisoners. And I'm not religious at all. So that itself was interesting. But to meet the prisoners, you know, more than half of them, comfortably more than half of them were mentally, were mentally ill, recognisably mentally ill. One of them believed that the world was controlled by Sumerian uh, aliens who'd visited in the Sumerian times. Um, one guy I met who's leaving that day, and this is the shocking thing, I was talking to him, he was a lovely man, and so I've got this silly name, Stig, like the guy from Top Gear, so they like, he wants to talk about that. Um, and I said, and he left, and I talked to the, the priest, and I was saying, well, he's a nice guy, and he's leaving, so good luck to him. And the guy said to me, He's on 24-hour watch at the moment because of serious mental health problems. We are going to see him out the door 
on his own. He's not going to have a house. He'll have 60 quid or some small amount of money. A drug dealer will approach him as he walks out the door, unless we have someone with him. And the reason this, this, this Christian mission existed was to meet people out of prison, to move them to a place where they can have a chance to start afresh, to start rebuilding. That was what they did and felt very laudable, even though I'm not, I don't buy the whole religious framework. It was a very laudable thing. These were trying to help people. But they were just saying he had no shot, really. He'd been in prison before. He has some serious mental health problems. He's going to be in prison again. And the route that will take him back to prison, who knows what that might be. But it's not likely to be a, have a story with a happy ending. And that's happening over and over and over and over again. Because someone somewhere has said, our job is someone commits a crime, we bang them up. We're not going to look at causes and consequences more deeply than that. And it is shocking, and as you point out, is that there will be a drug dealer at the gates, yeah, ready for the next client, ready for the next client. And this is this is seems to me to be the critical point that, and that drug dealer is likely to criminalise this person again, because who's to say why he may be tempted to take drugs coming out of prison? Who's to say how much drugs he's taken in prison? I mean, the rise of spice in prisons. You know, I met this guy in prison. And they were droning spice through open windows. That's how it gets in. So they're outside the perimeter. They fly a drone which has spice in it and it gets into it. And this guy was telling me about his experience of it. And he was uh, in his cell on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It was Christmas anyway. And his, his, his cellmate was toking on something. And he says, oh, can I have a toke? He thought it was a cigarette, he says. And it's spice, which again, only really exists because of criminal laws against cannabis. So this drug is just there to, to fill in the gap. So he smokes it and l- loses his mind. He believes he's superpowered and he puts his arms through the bars of uh, the door and he pulls because he thinks he's got superhuman strength and he smashes his arm out of his skin. The arm, the, the bone fractures out of his skin and, and, and breaks through the skin. And he showed me he had these, this metal plate and he had these two huge white scars on his arm where they would had to close it up again and 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 do that and and that was his life in prison a year ago what was your and this is going to be a ridiculous question but what was your feel when you was in a prison did was it as foreboding as what we could imagine yeah I, I, it was very depressing i mean and i was in a chapel so i wasn't i got a bit of a tour first uh it's how you imagine it to be um the prisoners are kind of infantilized, so they sort of have a slightly over-deferential relationship with the guards that I saw, but they're basically bossed around. And so it's not it's like seeing big adults, but they're slightly treated like children. Um, they told me some stories, you know, not everywhere's got CCTV, so pretty rough stuff can happen uh, in there. Uh, I think the number of guards was 50% of what it should be. And what they went, when that happens, the guards who are there just have to shut people in their cells all day because they can't look after them they can't maintain order so as the number and you read about you know not enough prison guards every time this prison has too few guards it basically affects their ability to run a prison in anything other than a shove someone in a cell and leave them there and one of the i read this book when i was writing my book that said the idea of imprisoning someone for a set period of time isn't that old an idea most people in british history up until the 18th century if you got caught doing something they either did something to your body they killed you or they fined you they didn't stick you in prison prison was where you kept were kept until they did something else to you or let you go 
So the idea, it's a Victorian idea. It's a Victorian idea. Jeremy Bentham comes up with the idea of the panopticon, you know, the prison with a central tower, which looking over everyone. Uh, because basically, after the American War of Independence, there weren't places you could send criminals. So transportation to America stopped. So they pick Australia, start sending people to Australia. Then they realize Australia is a beautiful country full of sunshine and, and resources. And they think, well, Christ, why are we sending criminals there? And so they thought, what can we do? And that was the point at which our criminal justice system, as we know it now, was fixed. It's a Victorian concept, which is build prisons, stick the people who you don't like in them. And if you have more people who are causing problems, build more prisons. And that was more or less the attitude that began in the 1850s, say, and then it's, it's kind of still dominant now. Do you reckon that's one is a, it's a generational thing then, is that we our generation specifically has been brought up with just decades of having a, a justice system that is there for punishment and we've had no other sense of restorative justice or rehabilitation i think that must be right and like, like i said i think that our country does have moral panics and again understandably the jamie bolger murder is a horrendous thing but you either got to look at problems i think with a solution in mind, or you've got to, or you've got to just treat it as an axe to be responded to. And we, the way we work as a country, is we just respond to it often emotionally. There's a, about the same time as the Jamie Bolger case. There was a two six-year-olds took a girl in Norway, stripped her naked. Uh, I think they beat her up, and you know, she died. She died of exposure in Norway. Norwegian points. These these kids were young kids, so there's a parallel with Jamie Bolger. Uh, and they were back at school a week later, with steps being taken to to change, to rehabilitate, to work out why they'd done that, to 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 deal with it. But that's what happened to them. They were back at school. They weren't incarcerated. We have a very very low age of criminal responsibility in this country, lower than most other countries, because we have this urge to punish. Now, again, if that had been my daughter, I'd be screaming for punishment. I'm not denying there is a genuine emotional need from for some for people if they if they are suffering um, injustice. I totally understand. That. I don't want people to think that I don't. But the job of a political system is to see what's good holistically, not to respond emotionally to the individual case. But what, that's exactly what we we do, and and other countries don't. And other countries, you know, Norway is always always a good example. It has fewer prisons. The prisons that do have are much nicer. You know, there's an island in Norway where prisoners live in houses on the island. Uh, the people who drive drive you to the island are prisoners. They're trusted much more. Uh, they're, there's, they're, they're expected to come out. And once they leave, they're expected not to return. And that happens far more often than it does with our system. So if you wanted to just look at it from a point of view of end product, I would like a, a politician to say, we have 85,000 people in prison, we should be aiming to get that to 40,000. We should be aiming to not sentence people less than a year. Because we're either sentencing people because we believe they're a risk and we believe they have to be taken out of commission. But that's a certain state of crimes. Very Sexual offences, you can understand. Violent offences, you can understand. There's a whole swathe then of stuff where you need to approach it differently. You know, getting people to work for free for a year, getting people to pay back money, which is what it used to be. I mean, the old Vergeld system of the you know, 11th century was when you committed a crime, you had to recompensate the person that you'd committed the crime against. You know, if someone with you know, white-collar crime, 
how much more punishing would it be to a white collar criminal to take away a lot of their money, to take away their status, to make them work for a year as a janitor, to make them do something that really would be a punishment, but it would be a punishment that serves the community. It would be a punishment uh, that doesn't, you know, it costs tens and tens of thousands to keep someone in prison. There must be better ways to still affect their lives, to still make people not want to do it, other than the simplistic idea stick him in prison and, and, and good luck. And, and it is, it is, that is a fascinating point. There's so many bits I want to draw upon there because proportional punishment isn't necessarily we, we do deal with in this country because unfortunately a lot of lower socioeconomic groups are going through the court system because of drugs. Whereas as we've seen recently with certain admissions from well, all of the leadership contenders, they've all consumed drugs and yet all of them are now standing up in front of TV panels going, well, we made mistakes, don't do what we do, but are still punishing the people down the lower end of the spectrum. And I really feel feel strongly about about this, that if you take, and some of them have taken drugs, you know, they like to pretend that it was a one-off, you know, I didn't inhale, someone handed me a drug, I didn't really know I was going, but some of them clearly have recreationally taken drugs in their lives, by which I mean on repeated occasions because they wanted to seek enjoyment, they've taken drugs. If they've done that, they either have to not become lawmakers or they have to campaign to change the law to allow that sort of activity. Anything in between those two things is rank hypocrisy. I'm not saying that I would want to punish someone for taking drugs 20 years ago. I don't care if people have taken drugs years ago. I really genuinely don't. You know, we might get to this, but the, the first point I feel about drugs is there is nothing morally wrong with people getting high very first principle. And in fact, if people think there is something morally wrong, then they would have to live a sort of monkish existence where they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't have caffeine, they don't have sugar. All of these are artificial ways of stimulating uh, the brain uh, and the body. And that seems to me to be integral to the human condition. People, if you leave them to their own devices, will find ways to get high, find ways to get some form of stimulation. So the first point to get to is that's not morally wrong so there's nothing immoral about taking drugs in and of itself the simple act of it and if you've got to that point then you're talking about well where the, where do the problems arise and then you have to deal with the problems as they currently exist particularly with it being criminalized but none of these people who've had these experiences are actually reflecting on them that's the thing that frustrates i want michael gove to say you know i did take cocaine at parties why and what did that mean and because it was criminal and because I was supporting some horrible criminal gangstery types who were selling me the drugs, in turn, who were buying them off poor oppressed people in, in a South American country who are in the grip of a, an oppressive society. Where's the reflection to say that? But instead, the reflection is, oh, it's something I shouldn't have done and I've learned from it and it's bad. That seems to me to be almost exactly the wrong lesson to, to, to draw from it. Do you reckon they're doing that just purely for the, you know, getting it through the, the media bugle? Yeah, I do a bit. And funny enough, I, I had Norman Lamb on. I used to do um, legalisation phone-ins quite often on my LBC show. I'm, I'm really interested in it. And I, got, I had Norman Lamb on the Lib Dem, who's been really good on campaigning in, in this area. And he felt that the world was changing. And the media, by which I mean really the media, so tabloid mid-market media, who are trying to reflect the views of what they see the, the ordinary person to be. And I said, I don't think I this is changing. And he thought they were. And I, I, the other thing I'm struck by is that Labour, which, you know, in opposition 
in some ways trying to argue for a more progressive society, I thought, well, Labour could maybe adopt this view. And then I talked to Labour MPs, and they were as small-c conservative as conservatives. You know, it's not a Tories are all anti-drugs. It fundamentally is people in public life, in power, feel that both the media and the common man and woman thinks drugs need to be kept criminal. That's their belief. Now, the extent to which that's true or changing maybe maybe a different picture but that's the picture they believe currently exists uh, you, you make a really good point in the book of in your early days of journalism because i think you started out at the pcc which is the press complaints commission yeah. is 2001. 2001 um so you've seen a lot of of evolution within the press and you said that the culture then uh, which was what michael gove was saying at the time being a journalist was that it was excess it was it was drinking at 11 15 in the morning when you're having your lunch yeah it was it, what it really was and and also journalists um was felt superhuman some of them uh, and there was such a level of arrogance in in the industry that i saw and i, I was a real outsider and in lots of ways i i, I am but you know, for the first 10 years i was working the press complaints committee so i was dealing with complaints about newspapers. I'm not really a proper journalist. Uh, but there was this arrogance, because newspapers used to make a fortune. Uh, before the internet, they were also a giant monopoly. If you had to hear about a news story, you had to read it in a newspaper or wait for a bulletin on the radio or TV twice a day. So they had a massive monopoly. They had a massive monopoly on advertising. You could make money running a newspaper falling off a log. It was so easy. It was just pouring money in. And what that led to was a sort of abrasive arrogance that sort of... It permeated uh, the industry, and it makes reflection, particularly humble reflection, very, very difficult. So it's very possible to be a journalist and be snorting coke, I'm sure, at one level, and writing articles condemning excess and condemning drug dealers and condemning kids who've been caught with drugs. And there was never moments of reflection because they felt so powerful um, that they didn't feel they had to. Now, that is certainly changing in the sense that Newspapers aren't powerful anymore. Uh, broadcasters aren't really powerful anymore. So the arrogance is going to have to dis disappear and dissipate. Whether that will lead to to changes in in attitude, I don't know. But they were part of that 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 part of the group of people for whom everything was turned up to eleven, and that includes lots of drinking. And I'm sure, I'm, I never really saw it, but include lots of drug taking, but with no reflection on, on what that might mean more broadly. Do you think that was why we've got the position we've got now where drugs are one of the folk devils of society? Because it's always been the media scandal. You know, this politician's or this person, this celebrity has been caught using drugs, so therefore pump that out there. Yeah, it's an interesting point, that, because there are obviously periods in which drugs were legal before they got discovered, before they were formalized in a way. I mean, opium was not illegal in parts of the 19th century. It was a massive part of our trade relationship with, with China. You know, when they first discovered E, there would have been a period before that was uh, illegal as well. I think there's not enough consideration of this moral point, which I'm really interested in. Why would you assume that drugs were morally wrong? Because often the debate almost accepts that as a given, that they're, they're, they're morally wrong. And I don't really fully understand that. You know, you know, I, can, I can understand the argument that if you, you know, if you couldn't, if you had a chance to uninvent alcohol, would you uninvent it? And I think the answer is very strongly that you probably would. But you can't uninvent things. You can't stop. And if people didn't have alcohol, I just feel they find other outlets for this, this type of stuff. So 
it is become. And I think as youngsters probably do it more than old people, old people in power who are unsettled by young people see it as a symptom of the unruliness of youth, probably more. So particularly in history, so the 50s, 60s, 70s, it would have been more younger people smoking weed or or taking cocaine or and then as ecstasy gets developed. So it becomes a kind of symbol of a generational difference. And so it's immediately tribalized and politicized it in that sense. But I'm not sure that many people have ever sat down and said, Let's go back to first principles here and work out why should this be illegal? What's our view of it? And maybe that's starting to shift elsewhere. You know, if you look at you know, more states in America have some form of legalized cannabis than don't. You know, you've got Holland, Portugal decriminalizing drugs. There seems to be this this global movement that just says we need to think about this. And I read was it California or Colorado had made a billion. Yeah dollars of revenue from cannabis that seems that sort of you know Norman Lamb we talked about I remember him saying that you could spend you could get a billion probably more than a billion in Britain two billion of revenue you could spend that on all sorts of things and also you'd be stopping police being interested in this at all so you'd be lessening the pressure on the police you'd be lessening the pressure on the court system you'd be lessening the pressure in prisons the net savings from an economic point of view would be considerable and then the net income from a taxable product I think would be considerable. And then the great argument, which is it would be a controlled substance. So the the levels of of, of uh, cannabis, something in particular, you could control the type of cannabis that is easily marketable. All these seem relatively straightforward arguments to me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And that's the frustrating point and it is that you're very fluent on this subject. And as you can imagine, that we're very invested in this subject as well. But one of the things, and you've had it on LBC phone-ins, I've heard it myself, that and we get it thrown at us, is that drugs are legal, and that's it. That's It's rubber stamped, but in some people's heads, that drugs are legal, that's it. Yeah, I, I always say, and I, I'm yet to be convinced of any other answer than this, is all the arguments in favour of criminalisation of cannabis particularly, have cannabis as, as a representative example, all of the arguments in favour of criminalisation are exactly the same arguments 
as the favour of decriminalisation. Because once you start down this route, you're going to say things like, um, it can cause serious mental health problems because it's very strong. Well, the answer is, make it legal, stop producing such strong stuff. I mean, I used to, I've smoked cannabis in my life, but stopped because ultimately it was dangerous to my mental health because the only drug that was available was skunk. And I was like, imagine if the only booze anyone could drink, like the, like in the 18th century, was gin. People would die from alcohol even more than they do. If the only substance was 100% proof booze, there would be an appalling alcohol problem in this country. And that's where we are with cannabis, it feels to me. If you want to buy cannabis, you've got to buy it from a dodgy person and you've got to buy very, very strong stuff that's not very good for you. So the argument that it's bad for you, that it can cause mental health problems, that it's too strong, is an argument for decriminalization, for regularization, for control. Um, the fact that it supports a criminal enterprise is an argument for stopping it supporting a criminal enterprise by by legalizing it. And then, so, and, and I've spoken to people who've called up on the, the show and said, you know, in tears, and again, at a local level, their child has smoked it and is in, a, is in an institution, or their child has smoked it even has died. I have huge sympathy for that. But they were doing that in an illegal, in the context of the drug was already illegal. So the illegality of the drug was not stopping that from happening. If you go to a university now or you go to a school, there'll be people with smoking weed. There'll be people, and it's not the best use of their time. And that's a legitimate argument to make, but they're going to do it. And if they're only going to do it with very dangerous stuff that's too strong, which they've bought from someone who's too dodgy, that's an appalling position to, to have allowed ourselves to get into. And, and this is where there is two sides of that discussion, is that you you are going to be faced with people that have had the, the mental health aspects that come with substance use. And you have the advocates that are a bit more considered, a bit more nuanced in, in their drug taking, know how to consume. And this was summarised bizarrely in, in the American office for me. I've been watching that recently. I've been going through it again. And there's, there's a great scene in it. It's, it's all about drug panics in this particular episode. And you've got um, Dwight, who is um, Gareth in the in the UK version, and he's sitting there, and he's got a card in his hand of of a bunch of cannabis, and he says to someone, "Right, what is this?" And the reply that comes back to him, he goes, "All right, it's Northern Lights Indica," and then Dwight goes, "No, no, it's marijuana." And that, for me, summarises it because you've got connoisseurs that know what they're doing, just as the same you have in wine, and you've got people that are just you know basically chugging the white lightning on a, on a yeah, you know, to be hideously um, judgmental on a park bench. Yeah, you know, that that kind of imagery is what we're what we're talking about. Do you think we can have a discussion about people that know how to use drugs, have researched, and are connoisseurs in in that department? Yeah, and no, I think that that's true. You know, it'd be far better to test ecstasy openly than to just take it and and trust your luck. Luck. You know, I'm sure it's true of cocaine as well. But exactly, I mean, I think it's it's shocking that. A very high percentage of people in this country will smoke cannabis and have to just take whatever's given to them, which can have all sorts of negative effects. I do feel that very strong skunk has real health concerns, really very legitimate health concerns. I, I absolutely believe that it is um, has problems that can can cause people probably with a likelihood to have mental health health problems anyway. I think can exacerbate it. Whether it can cause it, I suppose, is a slightly different argument. But until you can regularize it and bring it out into the open, you can't really have that discussion. You know, I would, and there's an argument people say to me, oh, if it was, if it was legal, it would be a weaker version and the strong stuff would still be sold by dealers and everyone would just go to the strong stuff. 
But I think that fundamentally misunderstands why people smoke cannabis. It isn't to smoke the strongest possible stuff. Because often that can be hard to handle. If something's too strong, like with anything, not if if the only booze that was uh, uh, was legal was wine, beer, and some spirits, you wouldn't have the vast majority of people going off to try and get gut rot at one hundred percent. You wouldn't. You would just say they would have a choice of things that they can can have. And but the concept of allowing people choice, allowing people information, allowing it to be out in the open, sells the pass for too many people because they feel that it admits that people are going to take drugs and that's what they can't handle when you say there's nothing wrong intrinsically with people taking drugs they can't accept that as a, as a, as a first principle and and this is for me where people need to be a bit more educated about the law because we do know how to differentiate as you said there's there's moral laws and there's and there's kind of you know absolute you know a victim. So we've got Marla in say, which is a, a, a victim, and you've got Marla prohibitum, which is a state-sanctioned law, which is there as a kind of like a moral compass. Those are the two different differences we got. And historically, you know, a Marla prohibitum was something like you know um, homosexuality. You know, we outlawed it, but now we know retro retrospectively that that was a hideous thing to do. Do you reckon that society can ever get to the grips with the fact that? Actually, our moral compass isn't always angled correctly. Yeah, I think that's. A, I mean, you've got to imagine so. That's a very slow process. I mean, the argument about incarceration. It seems to me that people have re- written, and I do buy this, that in fifty years you might well look back and say, "What the hell was going on? Putting people in prison? Why that? And it doesn't work. And what a terrible way of achieving um, uh, redress uh, and punishment." Like you said, homosexuality was considered a mental illness mm. in America. In Scandinavia until the late late eighties, it was a criminal offence here until which is shockingly recent, isn't it? Oh, shocking! Nineteen sixty nine. I mean, the American Psychiatric Association would judge it as an illness until really relatively recently. Um, so I, I think things do shift. Whether people can can be humble before history and recognise that that's happened in other areas and it could happen in this, I think the big experiments that are going on. So Portugal in terms of decriminalizing, looking at people holistically, trying to treat things as health issues, uh, seems to have produced some strong evidence of, of working. That's not about recreational drugs, that's just more about probably more serious drugs, but they have fewer people dying of heroin overdoses, they have fewer uh, people in that extreme health risk because it's decriminalized, it's dealt with uh, in a more humane and, and, and sensible fashion. I think what's happening in America seems to me on the recreational side to going to be a real litmus test. And it's not happened for very long. So I'm not aware of any great studies that exist of what's happened to California in the years since cannabis was legalized and what's happened to Colorado. I mean, there doesn't appear to be any great stories of there being vast problems. But um, if that experiment continues to prosper, at what point are there any arguments left? If Californian cannabis, recreational cannabis use is gone up, but not significantly, if it's not damaged people's lives, it's not affected productivity, if it's not affected traffic accidents, I think there's a legitimate argument about if you introduce another substance, you've got to manage the traffic aspect of that because people smoking weed and crashing cars, I understand that as a legitimate concern. That seems to me to be about a concern about driving as much as a concern about, about drugs. But... There will be evidence coming out of the United States over the next five years of what happens when you make a significant shift, first to decriminalizing medical cannabis and then going further with recreational cannabis. 
there will be information. If that information is pointing in one direction, then that may start to change things. But with the two parties we have at the minute, still a majority of people over the age of six, you know, 60 voting, you know, more old people vote than young people. We know that. Um, who's going to be the person who changes things? And what, what do you think about the demographics of voters? Do you think that, that it will be, that, as we said at the start with the quote we just said, will it be the younger generation? Or do you think this current generation, especially the ones that have just admitted consuming drugs in the, in the policy-making states, do you reckon they're going to be queued up to do anything? Well, it, maybe it gets better. I think my parents were 70 now probably never came across any drugs in their lives. They, they came from Loughborough, they didn't go to university, they would have gone from school to work, lots of booze around them, I would have thought, growing up, but not very many drugs. So they would have not seen drugs very much. So very hard for them, people of that generation, to, to, to consider things. But, you know, I'm 39. The next generation of politicians are going to be about that age. They almost certainly, as we saw in the Tory leadership, they they have all come in contact with drugs. So maybe that will that will shift. They will at least try and have a have an adult thing. The other thing I'm struck by is in the sixties, Harold Wilson uh, got rid of the death penalty. When there's polling, it was in favour of the death penalty. In fact, the, this country only the majority of people were moved against the death penalty only in the last five years. The popularity of the death penalty in this country is terrifying. Uh, and in fact, if there was a referendum on it, you could imagine this country voting for a death penalty. It's one of the reasons why referendums are so dangerous. But Howard Wilson saw all that polling and said, I want to change things. I want to get rid of the death penalty. And they did it. The Tories objected, Labour pushed it through. And ultimately, it became received wisdom that death penalty is an abhorrent thing to have. The homosexuality thing would have been exactly the same thing, similar time, 1969. It changes there would have been lots of people saying it's the end of the world as we know it, morality is disappearing, and now gay marriage is universally recognised. Abortion. Back in the 70s, something like 25% of people thought it was an acceptable thing to do uh, for women to choose, and now it's 80%. There is a progressive movement in Britain, even though it doesn't feel like that, in lots of areas. It can't be impossible that drugs is not going to be one of them eventually. You must have had some quite different perspectives in your career as a journalist, having been the manager editor of The Sun. That's and you've had it chucked at you on online all the time. You still get it, you know, even though you've got quite, you know, I don't want to say liberal views, but you've got yeah. you know pro progressive views. But people still go, but you edited The Sun, and that, that almost is like the out for them. Of, well, you can't have an opinion after. Well, yeah, that. I find it really odd because a. I didn't edit The Sun, and anyone who understands newspapers, the manager of The Sun doesn't dictate policy. It doesn't dictate, actually, even in the final analysis, what goes in the paper and what doesn't. The editor of The Sun is the person who makes those decisions. But also, they're, they're also then based on other factors as well, like what you think your readers will like and what the traditions of the paper have been, what you said two years ago, you know, all sorts of things come into play. So, But when I was at The Sun, I had an LBC show and I was on Sky News, and I pretty much had the same opinions, you know, with some changes, like everyone should change their opinions, but, you know, the same broad position for all that time. I didn't agree with everything The Sun said. There was definitely some things when I was managing editor of The Sun that I wished we hadn't published. Um, absolutely. And I'm really open that if someone says, you must have, you know, some of the things The Sun did where you were there, 
I would say at the time and say now, horrendous errors and errors of judgment, not always by me because I wasn't in a position to control what was in and what was out. But the politics of the paper were slightly removed from me because now I, I edit the Times Literary Supplement now, which is a very different beast. And as the editor, I will publish things that I don't agree with lots of the time, but ultimately I'm making a decision about what appears. And so anything that appears in the TLS, I kind of can answer for. That's not really true when you're the managing editor of, of a paper. So, yeah, so some people will never forgive me for having worked at the Sun uh, and they will never listen to anything I have to say because I worked at the Sun and that's fine. You know, I really do intensely believe in freedom of speech. And if people want to exercise that freedom of speech to say untrue and disparaging things about me, then that's, that's yeah, I have to just put up with that. And I did work at the Sun and the Sun has, has stood for some things that people rightly have got angry about. And I've got to respect people's judgments in that but I, I also um met a lot of great people there there's still some very good people there uh, i think we did some good things i had a specific job to do to try and improve the culture within the paper which i, I like to think i did so I, i'm not going to roll away from it i don't like it when people say oh, you published this column as if it was my gift either way it, that is simply not true but i'm also not going to you know, if people want to think that, they'll think that. But the other aspect is you just can't wipe away someone's opinion like that. So if someone has got a difference of opinion, whether it's editorial or just or what that summarises, we still need to listen to that, don't we? So the sun has got a, a certain uh, image, uh, a certain voice, but we still need to hear what people are saying from that. Yeah, and the reason the sun, less so now because of the, the massive diffusion of media, but the Sun used to be a much more concentrated version of a certain type of opinion. And that is an opinion that exists. I mean, like I said, I think there's nothing immoral about drugs, but people disagree with that. There's no point in pretending that they don't. I feel I'm right, but I don't feel that it's impossible to argue the contrary. And provided that people do it sensibly and, and, and humanely, that seems to be perfectly legitimate because, you know, there are problems, it seems to me, with relaxing drug laws. There will definitely be some practical consequences of that. The driving thing I mentioned seems to me to be a, a legitimate practical thing to, 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 to ponder. So you're right, you have to recognize that contrary opinions exist. Now, you know, one of the things I found reading the book, no, no one has a monopoly on being correct and virtually nothing is 100 The other thing I feel, I don't believe anything 100%, anything. I'm more suspicious of people who believe something 100% because the world is, is very seldom is the world split into something that's 100% right and 100% wrong. Um, and so I think it's useful to try and find those sort of textures of textures of disagreement. We have to accept in everything that the, the papers like the Sun or the Mail will be representing a view. They're not making that view up. That view is being articulated in pubs or cafes or in people's homes or cars or whatever. And you have to try and... And the sad thing I think about the world now, even to how it was five years ago, is any nuance is ignored. And I do think the world is tribalizing, Britain is particularly into tribalizing into left and right, Brexit and Remain. Um, and so when you have arguments with people, not only do they have to say, I disagree with you, they have to somehow disqualify you morally from even having the right to an opinion. Both sides do this. Brexit has remained a really good example of this. Not only are you wrong, you are an awful, despicable human being and not in my tribe. And that's got worse and worse and worse. And Brexit was both a symptom of that and a consequence of that. And, and that's got increasingly so. And I think that's the real... And, look, and the media 
over the years has contributed to that as well. Uh, social media, I think, has accelerated it hugely because it's the opportunity for people to sort of spew any form of unchecked um, spite and, and anger and hatred. Uh, and that's made things that, that's made things worse as well. Between social media and conventional media, do you think, going on what you were just saying, have, have we become more polarised? On, on Yeah, I think unquestionably so. And, and like I said, a large chunk of it is because, on the plus side, people are more connected than they were before. So that's nice, you know. Uh, we can talk to one another, we can understand other people's views. So there's a theoretical benefit to that. And, and the way newspapers used to work, horrible monolithic institutions which had their opinion, they could project it, no one could challenge it. That's what it was. And that wasn't healthy at all. And it led to lots of problems because it became sort of these monopolies. But there's an interesting question, it seems to me, which is, are people more horrible now because of social media? Or is our intrinsic horribleness just more apparent? And I think the answer is a bit of both. Because I think once you open the channel to allow sort of anger and bile to flow out on social media, that is going to have a an impact on real life. So when I see people shouting abuse in Westminster as politicians walk past or uh, very violent protests, that feels has been a bit enabled by social media. Because if you can call someone a horrible name with impunity on social media, how different is it to really shouting that to someone in real life? Mm. And I think once you open the doorway a little bit, it's easy to, to, to cross through. But I suspect also that human beings have always been thinking horrendous thoughts about one another. I'm not sure that's necessarily come from nowhere, but I think it's it makes us more polarised, it makes us more tribal. And this idea that you can be wrong, but without malice, I think we're losing day by day. And I think that's a real tragedy. There's lots of things I'm wrong about. And there's lots of things that we're all wrong about. And like I said, I don't believe anything 100%. So if someone were to give me a persuasive argument, I should be able to to listen to that. And then you have this culture of okay, X owned Y or X destroyed Y. And it's just every inch by inch, it's basically refusing to accept that good people can disagree about important things. Um, and as, as that drips away, we're going to end up with just teams, just tribes, just sides. I'm not sure how, how healthy that is. It is. You get a different sense of interaction on social media to the if you're in person. Yeah. It, the debates that we have in drug policy, if they rage across the pages of, of the newspapers or social media, they can be so horrific and they can, you know, call out the worst in people with names and this, that and the other. Get someone face to face and with the exception of a couple that are, that are you know, notorious for being quite mouthpieces for horrible concepts but most times you can have a considered re rapport with someone yeah i've never also i find that some of the things that people say to me and i've had people you know threaten to rape my wife threaten to rape my daughter uh who was seven at the time you know stuff like that it's her, you, you do feel it's just awful but i do relatively large numbers of public events and almost uniformly they're nice People are nice. People who come to see you, they might not agree with everything, but they're nice. You know, when doing this book, I've gone around to various things and um, people might say, I don't disagree about this, but generally speaking, they're just happy that you care and you're happy that they care. And we've got an awful lot more in common than, than we don't. Um, 
And I wonder whether there needs to be a, a backlash in favor of that to try and find common ground. Another thing I've started doing uh, for the last year is if someone, if I hear someone say something nice about another person, I always send them an email now and say, I was just talking to someone and they just said how great you were. Um, because I feel there's not enough of that. There's an awful lot of everyone thinks you're a twat um, to your face or people saying that. And actually, I think it's so nice if someone says, oh, I was just talking to, you know, and, and when I get people tell me about books they've read and I might know the author, or I might be able to email the author or something like that, even very small stuff or people at work. I, I always try and say, I was just talking to someone, they just said they thought you were really good. And a bit of that, I think, is probably in, in order as well. That, that is so strange you say that because uh, there's been a couple of times where I've dealt with a public figure and you know, I've tried to do that, play it cool, play it cool, but then every, something they've said in, in where they've obviously been neurotic or, or you know, kind of being a bit introverted in some way. And I've tried, it's, it's difficult to say something nice to someone these days yeah. because you feel like, I don't know, it just feels like is it either an ulterior motive or it's just... It is easier to be horrible to someone than to give them a compliment. Yeah, or to be aloof, and, and and I think we we can all think about ways of 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 shifting that. Um, because even as you know, you you're, you have a very clear view on drug policy. You're very you're keen keen to change it, but you're not going to get that just by saying I'm right and everybody else is wrong. I actually interviewed some vegans on front row. We're talking about vegan art. There's such a thing as vegan art because actually. Um, lots of artistic material is made with animal products. So A, there's a kind of, they have to find paints and paintbrushes that aren't based on animal products. And B, they then do art, which is kind of proudly vegan, that is sort of promoting a view of veganism. And I was talking to them and I was saying, my problem with, with 10 years ago, there was this hectoring attitude of people um, who are in, in some aspects of veganism, who were like, not only were they convinced of their own rightness they just need to tell everyone how wrong they were and they shout at them through red paint and that's not going to convince anyone and that's what i saw in this this movement was much more we don't expect you to become vegan but maybe eat meat one day less a week or maybe check the welfare status of the meat you are getting maybe try and make small alterations that will achieve a better goal and once you see a movement like that you are slightly convinced of us oh, i can do that and, and I think to try and find a discourse where we're realistic, we're trying to get people to move to the correct extent. It might not mean Damascene conversions. It might not mean shouting at someone until they submit. It might just mean prodding them in the direction and enabling them to make decisions that, that are ultimately better for all of us. That is so true. It's, it's about not drip feed, but just constantly just be polite and just have that chat. And also, if you feel you're right and you can articulate that you're right, then... If you are right, then hopefully some people will will, will come along with that. And I, I found as well that the the people that are quite comfortable in their own skin, especially especially in certain opinions, if they are comfortable and they're relaxed within it and can explain it nicely, then that just allows people to kind of be invited into the discussion as opposed to just chucking it at their doorstep and go right, deal with that. Deal with that. And, and like I said, you know, anything you believe in, in policy terms. There'll be chunks of you that have moments of doubt. There'll be ten percent of you think, well, maybe that won't work. Maybe that isn't the right thing to do. And I think if you're if you testify to that at some level, then people will, will respond to that because you know the worst thing about the Brexit situation is the holier than thou attitude on both sides. The you're completely wrong. Whereas the answer might be, I think you're wrong, and I think you're wrong for these reasons, and I think this is really unhelpful. But 
realistically, if we think that people can act in good faith, they will be acting for certain motivations, not all of which will be bad. And they'll be based on some level of understanding that they think something is right. Now, they might not be true. It might be wrong. But we've got to give people a bit of credit, I think. And is it an okay position to have of, look, I don't know, so inform me? Yeah, that, and that's an interesting question for politicians generally, um, which is the need to have an opinion, the need to yes. have an established entrenched opinion. I mean, don't know is the answer generally mm. in life, really. I mean, Brexit is the great don't know. You know, we were trying to push forward a policy where the result was 52-48, which is a mathematical version of don't know. And we, yet we're trying to turn that into an absolute 100% we know this. And it doesn't really... And we're seeing the problems with it. You end up with a Brexit that is impossible to achieve, that will disappoint everyone. But there's no way out of it because we have to go down down this route. So, no, I, I, I agree with that. And the best ministers, the best politicians, I think, will come to a brief, come to a job and say, I don't know, but I'd like to see what evidence suggests, what other countries have done, what possibilities there are to maybe think again. Because the one thing we're not very good at in this country is resetting. Yes. First principles. And actually, there's a bit of a quote right at the end of the book. There's a book in America called The Great Levelers about when societies get systemic change. And it's always as a result of tragedy. It's a result of war or famine or natural disaster. There's resets. And our last reset in this country was 1945. And we got the welfare state. We got the NHS. We got sadly, arguably, our education system, we got an awful lot of stuff set again. Now, no one wants a war or a natural disaster to come along. So the question for all of us is, will we have a reset ever? And if we can't have a general reset, can we have resets in certain areas? That's why I think symbolically, to go to the beginning, parliament moving might be an opportunity to say, we're going to do things differently. Because other than that, you're going to have an education system that's just got add-ons and takeaways. A health system's got add-on takeaways. A legal system that's based on precedent, so it literally is accumulating stuff all, all the time. Um, and maybe that's a problem because we can muddle along, we can keep things going, but there may be some fundamental points that we're not ever having a chance to look at again. Even down to the fact that our parliament is one side versus another it's not a forum basic things like that the setup is designed to be constantly in argument in dispute it's a really good point and one of the lessons i was talking to keir starmer he was saying that when the tories and labor tried to have their discussion about brexit they had no precedent for coming together and really uh, trying to work together to a common cause. Everything was based on this opposition, so they didn't trust each other, understandably. And there was so there was no mechanism, I don't think, to enable them to do that. And there's an argument, you know, and people might think this is naive that the health service issue that we have, that the we're all living longer, we're going to have more diseases, we're, we're going to endlessly spend more and more money on the health service, and we're going to try and deal with it on this five-year electoral basis, whereas actually we need a systemic look at it to see how it's going to work in 50 years' time. Could you take some decisions away from party politics? Could you say we all accept that we need a national health service of sorts, funded, however, that's what we need. So we're going to create a body, a public body, whose job is to set budgets to determine what we can and can't do, and it's not party political. You know, we don't trust politicians to set interest rates. They let the Bank of England set that. Why is it not? Why do we not need to say, let's have 
a health commission that is not party political that sets the next 20 year budgets of the NHS and says it needs to be funded in a certain way. And it's got people of all different walks of life and politics making the decisions, but it's not part of the of the toing and throwing of, of, of sort of Westminster life. Maybe big moments, big decisions like that could be made that would make a significant change. I think that's that's why a lot of people in, in the drug law reform sector call for a royal commission because it's kind of almost the closest thing we've got yeah. to depoliticising something. And also the point of a royal commission, I suspect, would be to to say, let's look at it from from scratch. Let's just simply, we'll come into this and say, we have no preconceived views on what drug laws should be. If indeed there should be drug laws, let's get various different people to submit evidence. Let's look at what's happened in Portugal. Let's look at what's happened in Colorado and California and Holland, and there'll be some bad experiences and good experiences. And if you genuinely believed that could be approached with an open mind, then I think you would, there's, it seems very unlikely, let's put it this way, that if they, that happened, Royal Commission in good faith, it is very unlikely they would support the status quo. So I'm going to, I'm going to finish up with a couple of things. Um, I'm going to go for a couple of, I'm going to say highlights, but I'm not sure that's the right terminology of what I've got written down here. But can you, um, there was something I was actually unaware of, and I'm quite ashamed of this, but when you was in prison, you was informed about a thing called spooning, which I, it was the most horrific thing. Oh, it was awful. And I, again, I didn't know anything about spooning, um, but it was this guy who was telling me that there are corners of the prison, of uh, different prisons where um, there's no CCTV. And he said that prisons are then run by the powerful. And if you get stuff smuggled to you, people assume that you're smuggling and concealing it inside your body. And so what would happen is you'd get dragged into a dark corner, you'd be held down and people would get a spoon and excavate it from inside you uh, because they think you've got drugs, they think you've got um, money, I presume, maybe. Um, and. It's one of those things when he told me he was completely serious. He wasn't even telling me to shock me because he didn't even his voice didn't even sort of change pitch. It was just these are the things that happen in prison and, and you know trying to imagine what that must be like was one of the virtues of being in prison actually to go and see it because you you can imagine this stuff and you can see TV shows, but it was a very when someone's telling you matter of fact that that can happen or even the fact that drones were being flown in through windows. I couldn't believe that really that spice is being sent in through windows or someone could smoke spice and smash their own arm up because they they believe they're superhuman all of that stuff i found shocking really and and another i think this one is a highlight from your book uh, how britain really works is that there is a story you put in there quite briefly about christmas jumpers in, in a trial yeah this is this is definitely true um so the reason i came was brought to the sun was i was working in crisis management so my job was to kind of help companies who are in difficulty. So the reason I was kind of brought to the sun was when I joined, about 40 sun journalists were being actively investigated for paying public officials. And then several were actively prosecuted. And there wasn't clear actually what law they'd broken. There was a law that stopped public officials leaking information, but there wasn't clear there was a law that actually stopped journalists paying for it. And actually, as it turned out, the the police and then the CPS were so terrified of making a decision, they just kicked everything up to a trial and juries in the end said that they didn't think journalists should be punished for paying for stories. But there was a moment in one of the trials, there were four, I think, Sun journalists on trial, uh, and they were at the court, and it was two weeks before Christmas, and it was wear Christmas jumper to work day. And the former jury turned to the judge and said, 
uh, can we wear our, it's Friday, old Friday, can we wear our Christmas jumpers? And everyone pays a pound to charity and can we all do it? And the judge then asked the lawyers for the defendants, can you do that? And of course, they couldn't possibly say no to the jury who were literally about to sit in judgment of them. So they sort of said yes. So they were standing there in the dock, their lives under scrutiny, all of this, this a horrendous moment for them personally, really genuinely damaging moments for them. And they looked up to 12 people sitting there with Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer sticking out from their jumpers. And I thought that was, yeah. So you know, the imagery of that. Yeah, is it's amazing. Uh, you you <laughs> can see that. In a, if Ricky Gervais that wrote that in a, yeah, in a, in a thing, yeah. I'm not sure you'd, you'd, you'd believe it. And then final question is, it's, it's going to be a broad one, but where do you think we're going with our drug laws? Do you think that we, we do stand any chance? Look, I, I think there's probably more momentum now globally than there has been for a long time. I think there are experiments actively in train. And I think at some point we are going to have to have a leader of this country with some vision again. And I think that if we could get a moment to reset, to re-examine from first principles and look at the evidence that's going in other countries. You know, California has not fallen off the edge of the world because it's legalized cannabis. Colorado hasn't. Um, the weight of that practice, because otherwise it's just a question of, of um, hypotheses, but we're gonna have real life, major parts of the world doing this stuff. And I think at that point then, you know, there's not gonna be any more money for the prison service anytime ever. There's not gonna be any more money for the police service any time ever, um, they're going to have to start looking at what actually is important in terms of policing. What should you be banging up people for? Can we make revenue from cannabis, for example, that could offset some of the costs of treating people? That taken as a whole means I believe there is a rational case that drug laws will improve. But it will take someone to flip the switch. Someone will have to call for a Royal Commission who can deliver a Royal Commission. Someone will have to call for a debate that could change the law. So I, th I think, yes, it's going to happen at some point. I don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of years because I think we're not going to do anything as far reaching as that. Thank you so much, Stig, for taking part in that conversation. As ever, I learnt a lot from the guest, which is always a bonus. So please do find him on Twitter at Stig Abel and go read his books. I would really do recommend them. And why we're on the thank yous, thank you to My Name is Ash for the Artwork. Thank you to Johnny Borrow for the theme tune. Thank you to Scroobius Pip for having us on your network. Thank you to John Harris to all you do at the Distraction Pieces Network. You're a legend. Thank you to... John and Tristan for all the producing work you do on this and thank you to Nikki Elson who is the executive producer of this show who we would not be here without he is an absolute knob twiddling genius thank you so much and thank you for listening if you want to help us out liking, sharing and subscribing and reviewing really does help so please do all of that and we've got lots more to come from Stop and Search so until then we'll see you soon bye Behind your barricades Yeah but how long Stay behind your barricades where true values seldom stray. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.